We're in 1 Thessalonians again today. We've got a couple more weeks to finish our uh, sermon series and uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. I think this will be the fewest verses that we've looked at during this series. We've got one or two more Sundays after this. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Um, if you are able, would you stand please for the reading of God's word? I'm reading from the New International Version. This is uh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy writing to the church in Thessalonica. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. Yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more, and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. You should mind your own business and work with your hands, just as we told you, so that in your daily life, so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders, and so that you will not be dependent on anybody. This is the word of God. And you can be seated. Uh, Just a quick teaser. Marquita and some of our children and some of our other folks have been working on something special for us next Sunday. Uh, so you, <laughs> I'm not sure what that sound and then noise sounded like, like a crickets or something. Woo, 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 woo. So don't don't miss next Sunday. It's going to be great. I say that in faith. I haven't actually seen it because she won't. She'll never show me these kind of things. But it's going to be great. Uh, From this passage this morning, I'll preach from the title, Quiet Ambition. Quiet Ambition. Sometimes it seems like the church, the the church writ large, is in the news for all of the wrong reasons. Early this week, a high-profile Chicago area pastor was fired from his megachurch for abusing his power and for slandering other Christians. Last week, we learned about hundreds of sexual abuse cases within local churches in the South. One of the Catholic archbishops was defrocked a couple days ago. And every single week, if we were looking for it, maybe every single day, somewhere in this country, a church's disputes and divisions spill into the public view in the form of an acrimonious church split. And in all of these cases, it's the dysfunctions within the church that cause the surrounding society to notice the church. Breaks my heart. And we shouldn't be surprised then when our society reacts angrily to the church's failures. The church in Thessalonica that received this letter from Paul and Silas and Timothy, they knew something about this dynamic. After all, some of you will remember that when the church first gathered under Paul's apostleship, Um, they provoked a violent response from some of the members of their city. Mobs, riots, political opposition. The the Thessalonian Christians were keenly aware that how they lived together as a community would impact how they were treated by their neighbors and the powers that be. Now Paul and his co-authors in this section connect how the Thessalonians loved one another with how they lived among their non-Christian neighbors. How they loved one another with how they lived among their non-Christian neighbors. In this passage, Paul urged the Thessalonian church to love one another 
by leading quiet lives in their city of Thessalonica. To love one another by leading quiet lives in Thessalonica. So today we're going to look at something a little bit counterintuitive. At least it was counterintuitive to me. took me a little while to get my head around what Paul was after in these verses. It's something that we often overlook. And it's this. The relationship between how we live in the world with how we love one another. The relationship between how you and I as Christian people live in the world with how we love one another. Here's the big idea. We love those inside the church by living peacefully with those outside the church. We love those inside the church by living peacefully with those outside the church. I know some of you don't like that insider outsider language. I'm sorry, it's in the Bible. But I get it. It's a little like too black and white, cut and dry, right? Like we know that not everybody who would come here on a Sunday morning would necessarily confess Jesus. And we know that not everybody who's not going to church is not necessarily a Christian. So we, we get that, right? But, but, but this is kind of the dynamic that Paul is, is engaging with here. Those who identify themselves with a, a local body of Christians and, and those in the, the world at large. We love those inside the church by living peacefully with those outside the church. Now, maybe that connection does not feel like an important one to you. Maybe you, like many of us, haven't felt the need to connect your day-to-day life in our society with how you love those in this church. But the Thessalonians, inhabiting a society that was often hostile to their faith, didn't have that luxury. And frankly... Um, many Christians around the world today don't have that luxury. And I think if we could actually be honest about some of the gaps between the vision of the kingdom of God, of which we are ambassadors, and the vision of the American empire, the American dream, the American society that we inhabit, well, maybe that connection would start to feel a little bit more important. The connection between our public lives in the world and our love for one another in the church. So, in these four verses, we're going to find two ways to live peacefully in the world, two ways to live peacefully in the world, and then two reasons that living peacefully in the world is also a way of loving each other. Two ways to live peacefully in the world, and then two reasons why living peacefully in the world is actually a way of loving each other. A little bit of context first. Uh, As a reminder, or if you're uh, new this morning to the book of Thessalonians, this church knew all about opposition. I mentioned a little bit about that earlier back in Acts Um, the description of the church's birth in that city comes with all sort of turmoil and tumult and opposition. Last week, we looked about, looked at the, uh, Paul's teachings on uh, a sexual ethic for the church. And we saw the different ways that that ethic would have, um, not rested well with the culture in Thessalonica. These kinds of things would have provoked confusion, uh, at, at best and opposition at worst for the church in that city. So we need to keep that in mind. We need to keep in mind that for the Thessalonian church, they were well experienced in facing opposition, in facing tension with their society. If we miss that dynamic, we're going to miss what Paul's doing here, okay? So so keep that in mind, please. The other piece of context that's important for us is Paul's focus on love in these uh, few verses. In verse 9, the first part of the verse, Paul says, now about your love for one another. This is a sibling kind of love, a sisterly or a brotherly love. It's the kind of love that the church in Thessalonica is known for throughout the region. The verse continues, for you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. 
Now, this love, this is a, a second word. This is a, a love in action. This is an active word, a way that love is actually uh, displayed and embodied and, and plays out in the world. And Paul says, this is uh, the kind of love that you have been taught about by God. That phrase is strange. It's not common in the New Testament, taught by God. What does that actually mean? It seems that Paul's trying to get at here that the way that the Thessalonians love each other, this active love, is is a reflection of God's love. It's what God's love looks like. Because God's love is active, amen? God's love is not passive. God's love accomplishes things, right? God's love is not safe. It's not restrained. It's not uh, maintained in a safe sanctuary or, or a sanitized space. God's love is active. And it seems as though Paul is trying to say, Look, the, and, and, and this is what your love looks like. Again, over and over again, we see Paul commending the church in this letter, and it seems like he's doing that again here. Verse 10, and in fact, you do love all of God's family throughout Macedonia. I want to point out something here. Paul does not say you love your non-Christian neighbors. Paul does not say you love the people who oppose you. Paul says you love all of God's family. So two things here. There is a, a, a kind of a priority of the church's love. We begin by loving the people we're sitting right next to this morning. If, you, if we can't love the people we're sitting right next to this morning, then we're not going to love the people outside of these walls. Amen? There's a priority. There's an assumption that Christians who share in common the Eucharistic blood of Jesus, who share in common the baptismal waters of the Holy Spirit, that we begin in our active love by loving one another. Amen? But notice that Paul says you love all of God's people, and all means all. <laughs> And on the one hand, oh, okay, loving other Christians, that's not, I can do that. You know, that's not a big deal. Really, 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 <laughs> right? Because there are lots of Christians who annoy you, who get under your skin. Some of you all are like, I'm not one of those churchy Christians. They're all talking about God all the time and all these spiritual cliches. No, you're called to love that Christian too. Oh, that person has totally different theological beliefs than me. They totally interpret this section of scripture. Yeah, that person too, that person too, that person too. Paul says you're known for actively loving in a way that reflects God's love, all of God's people. And all means all. Amen? Amen. All means all. Again, this doesn't mean that the Thessalonian church doesn't love those who are not Christians. We're going to, in fact, see how they do in this passage. It just means that their love begins there. They are known for loving like God. Are we? Are we known for loving like God? We think about... um, you know, loving each other as we, we say nice things to each other or we don't gossip about each other. Or we pray for each other. We care for each other's needs. These are good things. These are great things. Um, but Paul, Paul wants to push it a little bit beyond this. He wants the Thessalonian Christians to understand that how they intentionally lived in the world, in a world that often rejected them, was also an important way of loving each other. How we live when we leave this place And go about our day-to-day is another important way of loving one another. And as we're going to see, the more intentionally we are about how we live in the world, the better able we are to love all of God's family. All right, so I'm trying to show off for new creation today with my amazing, amazing graphic design skills. See? Everybody knows what that is, right? I'm amazing at this. So this is the church. This is the church living in the world, facing 
Opposition facing lightning bolts. Oh, yeah. Ah, ooh, ah. I think this is the vision that Paul is, has in his mind. This is uh, the people of God gathered together in Christ Jesus out of the world, but still very affected by the world, still very able to be wounded by the world, still very much at the whims of a world that might tolerate them one day and reject them another day. Okay? And this church in Thessalonica experienced opposition on a regular basis of a variety of different kinds. So, context. The church faces opposition. The church is known for loving one another. And Paul is going to hold these two things together in this passage. Facing opposition and loving each other. Following Jesus, as we've said before in this series, leads to opposition. If Jesus says, you're going to know trouble in this life because I've known trouble and you're following me. So you're going to know trouble in this life. But that doesn't mean that Christians seek opposition. We're not martyrs, right? We, we don't try to get in trouble because one Christian acting the fool out in society impacts all of us, right? One of y'all wiling out. Like we're all going to feel that thing. We're all going to, like how many times have you been in a conversation with somebody who's not a Christian and you have to go, I'm not that kind of Christian. Right? Like Westboro Baptist Church. Like how many of y'all know what that is? Raise your hand. Hi, 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 hi. You know there's like 15 members of that church? Seriously, it's just like one family. Literally, it's like one family, maybe a couple, three people. It's small. It's little. And yet, they, everybody knows about them because they show up at these very public places with this very hateful, homophobic, just, just horrific language and presence in these public spaces. And that, that causes problems for all of us. Would you agree? Like, that, 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 that latches on to our own reputation. That's an extreme example. But, 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 but you get the idea. We don't, want, we don't want opposition. We're not looking for trouble. We're not trying to be in society's spotlight. Our goal is never to be persecuted. In fact, Paul says in verse 11, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. One translation of this would be, make, make it your ambitious to not be ambitious. Make it your ambition to not be ambitious. Another translation says, seek stillness as Christian people living in society. Seek stillness. We are not trying to find society's spotlight because when society's spotlight comes, it often brings trouble. We love those inside the church by living peaceably with those outside the church. So here's the first way we do this. Here's the first way we live peaceably in the church. It's by minding our own business. (laughs) I mean, that's just Paul. That's just, I'm not, I'm not modernizing his words. It seems straightforward, right? Mind your own business. And it kind of is. So much Christian mess in the world could be avoided if Christians just mind their own damn business. Really, right? I think that you can actually, this is a little stretch. I think you can interpret the last five of the Ten Commandments as God just saying, mind your own business. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie on your neighbor. Don't cover your neighbor's stuff. Just mind your own business. It's a stretch, but you get my idea. So mind your own business. But there could be a critique about that that says, well, that's kind of an escapism, right? Is this just the church just always thinking about the church? Is this just Christians always thinking about Christians? Is this just Christians being so so, uh, kind of heavenly minded that they're no earthly good? Is this kind of a Christian escapism? Is this a quietism? And that could be a valid critique if we think about church as Sunday mornings. Coming to church, singing some songs, hearing a sermon, and then going about our daily lives. But 
that's not the church. That is not the nature of the church. The church is the people of God. The church is an alternative society in the world. The church is an expression of the kingdom of God. So get this, when we talk about minding our own business, we're not talking about just your own personal quiet time. We're not even talking about an interesting discussion that you had in community group. Those are good things. When we talk about minding your own business, we're talking about minding the kingdom of God business. We're talking about minding the business of the kingdom of God. We're talking about building and organizing community that represents God's justice. We're talking about building and organizing community that represents the reconciliation that Jesus accomplished across cultural lines of division and segregation and separation. We're talking about building and organizing a community that redistributes wealth among us so that no one here is needy. Talking about building and organizing a community that reimagines family that so, so that nobody among us is lonely. That's minding our business. That's minding the business of the kingdom of God. Let's be clear. When Paul says, mind your own business, this is not a call to look away from what matters, but rather to not get distracted from what matters the most. There's a way in which Paul's saying, look, just, just don't get caught up in societal drama. There is debates and there are controversies raging through our society that we can, we can mostly ignore because they're a distraction from what God has called us to. Now, does that mean that we never get involved with what's going on in our society? Absolutely not. You could not read scripture and come to that conclusion. So how do we know? How do we know when we uh, need to get involved with what's going on in our society? I forgot I was going to draw something here. Mind your own business. All right, so this is one. Well, you don't like it, Esther? <laughs> this is my era. You don't like it? MB, mind your own business. This is mostly for my own benefit, so if you don't, it's just not helpful for you, it's fine. So how can we know when to insert ourselves into what's going on in society? How do we know when we are called to mind business outside of the walls of the church. I think there's at least two kind of clear examples that we see in scripture. The first is when we see another Christian being treated unjustly by our society. So, so even Paul, like when he's being treated unjustly in the, in, in, within the Roman uh, empire, he appeals to his Roman citizenship, right? He doesn't just kind of sit back and take that. He inserts himself into that dispute. There, there's a way in which when we see other Christians being treated unjustly by our society or by another society, we speak up about that because we're related to those people. Amen? 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 That's one. The other time that we will kind of deliberately insert ourselves is when we see anybody anywhere oppressed. When we see anywhere, anywhere, anybody anywhere oppressed. When we see the image of God being defamed in anyone. That's a, that's a, that's a, that is a, 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 a matter of idolatry and injustice that cuts, cuts the very heart of who we are as the people of God. When we see anyone anywhere being oppressed, that's our business. That's our business. And so we'll speak up. We'll speak out. Uh, the early church um, was quickly known for rescuing abandoned infants. In a society where families were only supposed to have three children, in a society where male children were much more valuable than female children, infanticide was rampant in the Roman Empire. And often it was little girls who were abandoned. And the church very quickly became known as the people who went out and rescued those children, made sure they survived and lived and weren't abandoned to become temple prostitutes in some cases. And there was pushback. There was societal pushback. That's not how things were done. But the church said it doesn't matter. 
in this area, we are going to put ourselves in that spotlight and be those people because we will not uh, remain idle when anyone anywhere is oppressed. So we, we prioritize living as the faithful people of God. We step into the societal spotlight when we see other Christians being uh, persecuted unjustly or when anyone is oppressed in our society. Otherwise, we can mind our own business so that we don't get distracted from the business of building for the kingdom of God. We need wisdom on this one. We need wisdom in discerning how we mind our business in this world, in this society. There's always a crisis or a drama, especially these days, amen? I think five hours can't go by where it's not like, this is the most important thing in the world. But, um, but, but we can ask ourselves, we can discern together. Is the church being treated unjustly? Are people being oppressed? And if the answer is no, then we can move on. We can devote our time and our energy to nurturing the Christian community, a a, a community that's meant to be a city on a hill that cannot be hidden no matter how much the drama and the crises which surround us. But a lot of times, the answer to that question is going to be yes. This is our business. And then we've got to speak up. And we've got to step into that thing. So when the President of the United States, again this week, dehumanizes immigrants and refugees, that's our business. When our society has decided that wounded and murdered children are an acceptable cost for a barely regulated gun industry, that is our business. When churches are attacked by arsonists or bombers in this country or any other country, that's our business. And we will absolutely mind our business. Even so, it's our ambition to lead quiet lives. We're not looking for drama, but we will mind our business. First way we live peaceably in the world is by minding our own business. The second way, go ahead, Esther, you can go ahead and laugh now. That's fine. Is that we work. The second way that we live peaceably in the world is by working, and more specifically, Paul says, working with our hands. This sounds random to our ears, I think. Why does Paul call this one out? Um, perhaps because there's some in the church who were convinced that Jesus was coming back tomorrow. So it's like, I go to work. If Jesus comes back tomorrow, I got enough in the savings account to make it a few days. Come on, some of y'all, you're t- you would totally be there, right? Like, what? No, I'm good. Uh, it could be, though, that there's some in the church who are taking advantage of the generosity of the church. Right? It's like, oh, it's a pretty sweet setup. Right? People taking care of me. Right? But we don't actually know. Paul doesn't call either of those things out. It's just, it's just kind of a, a possibility. Um, I think what we instead need to point out here is just the importance of work in general for Christian people. Paul identifies work as being something essential for how we live in the world as peace-seeking people. In that time, only slaves would have been expected to work with their hands. So can you hear that for a second? When Paul says, work with your hands, he's saying something very specific about that particular time and place and who was expected to work with their hands. Paul says, as Christians, we'll work with our hands. We'll work with our hands. There's an affirmation of work in this teaching. There's a way in which Paul's almost kind of pointing back to before the fall when, when God gave Adam and Eve good work to do, work that wasn't about just 
scarcity or just getting by, but had much more to do with being created in the image of a God who creates. Kind of living out our image of God by working alongside God to, to nurture, to tend, to steward God's world. There's a dignity in good work. And I think that's what Paul is identifying here. So, Again, this is a little bit of a stretch for us. So what does this look like from the outside looking in? Like from the society's point of view, looking at the church, what, what might this look like? Well, for one, Christians work. And not just Christians work, but Christians work everywhere. Like in every, in every trade, in every field, you're going to find Christian people working. What else? What, how else might this look? Um, Christians care about the dignity of work. So our interaction, our engagement with work is not all about the paycheck. It's not all about the the status that goes along with it. Now, we need the paycheck, amen? Amen. Some of you, some of you, some of you should be getting paid more than what you're currently getting paid, for real, right? That's a justice issue. But but as Christians, our starting point is not uh, how much money can I get. Our starting point is not how much status can I attain, Our starting point is uh, the dignity of work as people created in the image of God to care for God's creation. So Christians work, and we work everywhere, and we care about the the dignity of work. So again, because no work is beneath us, we're going to pursue the dignity of work everywhere. And we're going to pursue the dignity of work for everyone who works everywhere. You just listen to how our society talks about work. About what kind of work is dignified and what kind of work is not dignified. Listen to how our society makes assumptions about who works where. About who's going to have high-paying jobs. Who's going to have agricultural seasonal jobs. What are the assumptions that go along with those things? And as Christians, we say, nope, 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 nope. Nope. That's not how we work in the world. That's not our posture toward work in this unjust world. Uh, Another way of saying this is that we reject the cultural hierarchies about work. Uh, When I was first an associate pastor at a church in the suburbs, Maggie was going back to finish her degree, her undergraduate degree. And so she needed to find a part-time job. She quit her full-time job, find a part-time job that had flexible hours. So she was going to go interview at this coffee shop. And just kind of on a whim, I was like, hey, ask the owner if I could work with you one night a week. It just kind of, kind of sound fun. Hang out with my wife in a coffee shop, you know, outside of the church bubble. Just sounded like it'd be kind of fun. And she came back and she's like, they actually went for it. <laughs> like, yeah, sure. And so for like maybe four years, every Tuesday night, Maggie and I worked at Las Piazza Coffee Shop in downtown Wheaton. And it was great. I absolutely loved it. It was fun. Until like about nine o'clock because I'm, I'm a morning person and I just wanted to get done at that point and get home. But most of it was great. Except, except for when somebody would come in who knew me. When someone would come in who knew me as Pastor David. And then I would always have this thing that would come up in me. That I kind of had to explain myself. I had to rationalize why I was working a minimum job, minimum wage job at a coffee shop on a Tuesday night. And I would find myself, like, trying to work into the conversation, you know, like, trying to, like, oh, I'm just here because, you know, just for, just, I'm trying to get outside the church world, you know. I don't, we don't need the money or anything like that, you know. Like, it's not my long-term career goals. 
was this ugly thing, right? Like, why did I feel like I had to do that? Why did I feel like I had to justify me being at this minimum wage job? Well, we know why, right? We know the way that our culture has a hierarchy when it comes to work and the assumptions that we make about it and who has access to it and who should do what kind of work. And as Christians, we reject all of that. We say that all work can be, can be dignified, that, that everybody should be able to find dignity, good-paying dignity, in the work that they are pursuing. So we reject the cultural premises about who is worthy of good work. So again, if we're thinking about how does our society look at the church and our, and our lives in the world, they're going to notice some things about how we work, about how we treat work, about how we treat our, our co-workers. They're going to notice, watch this, when you go to lunch from your high-paying downtown job with your co-workers, they're going to notice how you treat the person behind the counter who's serving you. They're going to notice how you treat the person who's sweeping up next to you in the food court because you have certain perspectives and assumptions about the dignity of that person's work as well. Are you, are you, are you with me? Okay. So, so th- this is one of the ways that we live in the world as peace-seeking people. Okay, about to make the turn. Paul says that we live peaceably in the world by minding our business and by working with our hands. Okay, so now, now he gives two ways that living peaceably in the world is a, is a way of loving each other. Two reasons that living peaceably in the world is a way of loving each other. Maybe you're already starting to see some of these implications. But the first reason that living peaceably in the world is a way of loving each other is that we uh, win the respect of outsiders. That we win the respect of outsiders. Respect. Uh, so again, we're thinking about like how does our how does our living peacefully in the world impact how we can love one another within the church? Um, we gain the respect of outsiders. Paul does not say that you gain the understanding of outsiders. Paul does not say that you gain the acceptance of outsiders. We might sometimes. That's great, but we're absolutely going to be misunderstood as Christian people in our world. Just get used to it. The early church was sometimes known as cannibals because they ate the, the body of Jesus and drank the blood of Jesus. No, seriously. This was a regularly leveled charge against the Christians that they were actually eating people. You read the ancient Roman literature about the early church. It was a normal thing. So we're going to be misunderstood in the world. Hopefully, hopefully, no one's calling you a cannibal, right? But to live as a Christian person in this world means that we are going to be mislabeled. We're going to be misunderstood. You're going to get put in a box that you don't want to be in. You're going to want to say, I'm not really one of those kind of people. But that is part of being a Christian in the world. And when our goal is acceptance by an unjust society, or when our goal is understanding by a confused culture, then we are going to lose our way. No, our goal is respect, Paul says. Why is respect from our society important? One, for gospel witness. We don't have to be understood or accepted to still be respected. But if we are respected, then we have a chance to bear witness to the gospel. If we are respected, we have the chance to bear witness to the gospel. People can be like, I don't totally understand Marquita. 
I don't know why she spends time on a Saturday working with this gospel choir and, and, and this, this, working with our children and, and why she, she, she got her PhD and she's working part-time for this church nonprofit when you could be, you know, you could be making a lot more money in this sector. I don't really understand, but I respect you. Amen. I don't get it, but I respect you. When our, when our society respects us, we gain a hearing for the gospel. We gain a hearing for the gospel. So that's one reason that respect is important. The other reason is that the more respected we are, the more our society will leave us in peace. Now, again, that's probably not something that you're, like, really wanting for. Because thankfully, we're, uh, the Christian faith in, in, in America is, is relatively accepted. But put yourself in those Thessalonians' shoes again. Right? They're, they're getting hammered regularly. They're getting attacked regularly. They're feeling the opposition regularly. Paul says, if you gain the respect of your society, then you're going to be able to live more and more at peace with your society. Like being persecuted is not fun. Being opposed is not fun. So as we live peacefully in the world, we gain the respect from those outside the church, and then everyone inside the church benefits. The more that the church is respected, the more that you and I experience that benefit. Let me give you a couple examples. When we were starting this church, before we had a church, I was like meeting people uh, in the neighborhood, and I would sometimes be asked, what denomination are you a part of? And I would say, the Evangelical Covenant Church. <laughs> and they would say, what? What? Pastor Amelia, what was that? What was that first? I'd say, uh, Evangelical covenant church now when you say evangelical in a predominantly african-american neighborhood there's some assumptions that go along with that would you agree oh you're a part of a white denomination and so what i would tend to say very very quickly usually without even taking a breath is have you heard of oakdale covenant church (laughs) you see oakdale covenant church is a large evangelical covenant church a little bit south of here that is very black (laughs) very well known in the community for serving the community, for loving the community, for organizing on behalf of the good of the community. That's who I wanted to be associated with. I wanted to attach myself to their respect. You might not be able to put the respect on me just yet, but let me get close enough to the respect that you'll put on Oakdale, see if some of it rubs off on me. And it did. Oh, we know Oakdale. Oh, okay. Tell me more about what you're doing. Tell me more about what's happening in your church. That, that, so you see, as we get that respect from our society, not understanding, not acceptance, but respect, it benefits, I benefited from Oakdale's respect. Even from people in our neighborhood who are not Christians, who never, don't care anything about the fact that we were starting a church in Bronzeville. In fact, they probably would have preferred that we didn't start a church in Bronzeville because there's too many churches already and none of them doing anything in the way thing anyway. Oh, but you're with Oakdale. Okay. Okay. That's all right. That's cool. That's cool. Um... Some of you have experienced this with, with this church. Some of you who maybe are not from this neighborhood um, or who didn't grow up in this neighborhood. Some of you have found yourself in situations where you're, you're serving up at Jackie Robinson or a diet or somewhere else, and people are like, what are you doing here? I'm, I'm a part of uh, New Community Covenant Church. Oh, you guys do the fun fair. Oh, oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm here with New Community Outreach. Oh, 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 you guys are the ones who are... Doing the restorative justice. Oh, cool. Okay. All right. So you see, that, that's how that dynamic works. Like the, the more that the church experiences respect from the society, the more we all benefit from that. Here's what I would encourage you to apply this to. 
uh, get involved with new community outreach. This is one of the ways that we are seeking to, to gain the respect of our neighbors. This is one of the ways that we're trying to, to situate ourselves alongside of our neighbors as we seek the good of our neighbors alongside of the work that is already being done. When we work with our hands in the, in the, in the community garden, when we serve at diet or through the fun fair, these are all ways in which we are gaining respect for our entire community. And people, I promise you, people notice this. You, you all might not experience that all this often, but I'm around our neighborhood enough on days that are not Sunday <laughs> And when I say I'm from New Community or part of New Community Outreach, people go, oh, okay, okay, cool. That's not, we're not doing it for our own accolades, right? right? But there's a credibility there that comes from serving faithfully in the community. Okay, let's talk. Oh, have you heard about this thing that's going on? Would you guys be interested in participating in that? And on and on. The first reason that living peacefully in the world is a way of loving each other is that we begin res- uh, earning the respect of outsiders. And then the second reason, and we're almost done here, is that we... Uh, provide for one another. The second reason that living peacefully in the world is a way of loving each other is that we actually provide for one another. So I'm going to write the word provision here. If I'm going to uh, be honest with you, this was the hardest one for me to kind of get my head around like how, what, what, what Paul was trying to get at with this one. In the NIV, it says, so that you, you, you live this way, you live peacefully in this world so that you will not be dependent on anyone. A, a more accurate translation from the New Revised Standard Version says, so that... Uh, no one will be in need in your community. A theologian, Cain Hope Felder, says that what we see here is a, an interdependence that leads to provision. An interdependence in the church among Christian people that leads to provision. Okay, but how does living peacefully in the world, how does the ambition to be quiet in the world lead to interdependent provision? Paul doesn't, doesn't really tell us, I think because he assumes it's just obvious to the Thessalonians. It's not obvious to us. So um, let me say a couple things. First, um, it's easier for us to provide for each other when we're not being attacked from the outside. Now, again, that's not something most of the experience, but for the Thessalonian church, that was part of their experience. It's easier to provide for one another, to care for one another, to make sure that all the needs are met within the church when there's not outside attack on the church, when they're not facing mobs or riots or political opposition. Because that's, that's one pretty obvious. A second one, though, is that when we make it our collective ambition to live peacefully in the world, we are innately more dependent on each other. When we make it our collective ambition to live peaceably in the world, we have to be more dependent on each other. If church is only about coming to a service once a week or going to a Bible study occasionally, then we don't really need each other. You can come to this church every single Sunday and never need anybody else in this church. One of the strange things about so much of Western Christianity, we've reduced faith in Jesus to personal salvation, and we've reduced church to a weekly spiritual pick-me-up, and then we act really surprised at how shallow our community is. How come people aren't connected? We need to start some more small groups. We should try to do a, a social event. We should do a thing for women and for men and for married people and for single people. Maybe those are fine things. But those things are not going to address the, the thinness, the shallowness of our community if our vision of church is something we come to. It's not what the Thessalonians experienced, though. Back in chapter 1, Paul says, For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power 
with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. The Lord's message then rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Jesus had conquered sin and death and evil and the devil on the cross and then had risen victoriously as the universe's only true king. So this small, diverse community in Thessalonica became an outpost of Jesus' kingdom. And how they lived in the world peacefully as his ambassadors was a high-stakes endeavor. They were not just coming to church. They were living risky and courageous lives as the church. And so they had to do it together. They didn't just come to a worship service. They were the church of people of deep conviction, propelled by the power of the Holy Spirit to make the gospel ring out through the whole world. The call to live peaceably in the world could only be accomplished together. The apostles in this letter are not asking a few disconnected individuals to make peace their ambition. They are writing to a community and as this community minds the business of the kingdom of God and works diligently among their neighbors, they're going to have to lean on each other. They're going to have to depend on each other. They're going to have to count on each other. We get it twisted so often. We try to do these like community building things without any mission. We try to do these community building things, these relationship building things so that we can have better community and deeper friendships, but it's never attached to, to mission, to God's mission in the world. The Thessalonians were a part of God's mission in the world of living out in the world their identity of the people of God. And this was risky and it took courage and they had to do it together. And so, of course, their community had to be deep and thick and rich because they couldn't do it alone. They couldn't do it by themselves. This This is why intentionally living peacefully in the world is a way of loving each other we end up more deeply committed to one another. And thus there are fewer and fewer needs among us. Living peacefully among those outside the church leads to provision for those inside the church. I feel like I should just say that again. (laughs) This is still a stretch for me, so maybe I'm the only one. We end up being more and more committed to one another as we live out God's mission in the world because we depend on each other. And so there are fewer and fewer needs among us. When we live peacefully with those outside the church, we can provide for those inside the church because we're more innately connected with each other. The very act of living peacefully in the world meant that the Thessalonian Christians didn't have to depend on the world for their provision. God would provide through their interdependent fellowship with one another. So let me get specific. Ask yourself this question. If I lost everything tomorrow, could I count on this church to see me through? If I literally lost everything tomorrow, if I had a Job-like experience and lost it all, could I count on this church to get me through? That's what Paul's talking For for many of us, that's a theoretical question. That was not a theoretical question for the Thessalonians because they existed in a society that was hostile very often to them. They couldn't count on the society providing for their needs. So for them, it was a real question. If you lost every single thing tomorrow, could you count on this community to meet your needs? That's what the Thessalonians were expecting. 
That's how the Thessalonians lived. Paul talks about the Thessalonians in another letter to the church in Corinth as giving sacrificially out of their great need so that other people's needs could be met. If you lost everything tomorrow, could you count on the people sitting around you today to see you through? And if the answer is no, then what needs to change? What needs to change in your life? Maybe you just need to be a little bit more honest about your needs. We've got some prideful people in this church. Amen, amen, amen. We've got some prideful people in this church. So maybe we just need to be more honest about our needs. That could be. That's a, that's a simple one. But maybe, connected more with Paul's line of thought here, maybe God is inviting you to intentionally join your sisters and brothers as we purposefully live in the world as God's ambassadors of peace. If our participation with God in the world leads to our provision with one another in the church, then maybe if you can't answer yes to that question, yeah, all my needs will be met, then maybe there's an invitation for you to be more purposeful in how you're living in the world as God's ambassador. Maybe there's an invitation to see yourself more and more as an active participant with God's people and of God's peace in the world. Think about your block. Think about your work. Think about your academic program. What might change about your dependence on the body of Christ if you were to make it your ambition to live as a peaceable person in those places? What would cha- Remember, when we talk about peaceable person, kingdom business, working with your hands. What would change if you intentionally joined God in your workplace, on your block, in your academic setting, How might you become more and more dependent on the body of Christ? Our interdependent Christian community is one in which everyone should be provided for, in which the abundance of the kingdom of heaven is manifest among us. It depends on our active participation as peacemakers in the world. Okay. So as we make it our ambition to live peaceably in the world, our love for one another is shown in how we win the respect of those who might be hostile to the way of Jesus and in how we care for and provide for each other. Throughout the history of the church, there are these pendulum swings. Sometimes the church retreats completely into itself and closes its eyes completely to the world. Other times we swing in the other direction. We become so enmeshed in the world that you can't tell the difference between the church and the world. The Thessalonians were doing something very different. The Thessalonian church found a different way, a way to live faithfully and lovingly within a society that often misunderstood them and sometimes even opposed them. By living peaceably among their neighbors, they demonstrated an intentional love for one another. In the first couple of centuries of the church's existence, in the 100s and the 200s, there was a variety of plagues that ravaged the Roman Empire. Uh, The first one, smallpox, killed between a quarter and a third of the entire Roman Empire. Uh, measles, then like 70 years or so later, killed about 5,000 people a day. So get vaccinated. <laughs> no, don't get that. Oh, yeah, you're a doctor. You can get it. <laughs> um, about, so these are terrifying times. These are apocalyptic times. Like I felt like the end of the world was coming. Uh, and about these times, the Christian bishop Dionysus wrote this about the average Roman citizens during that time. At the first onset of the disease, 
they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead and treated the unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. So Dionysus says that, that was, we get that, right? They didn't know where these diseases came from. They didn't know how to treat them. Made sense. That's what was happening throughout the empire. But then, then Dionysus writes about the Christians and how the Christians responded. He says, heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many nursing and curing others transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. Sounds like a very kind of rosy picture of the church. Wasn't that amazing? But the thing is, uh, other authors at the same time who actually hated the church testified that this is actually what the church did. Uh, Other authors looking at the church, hating the church and how it was spreading said, look, we got to do, we got to do better because look at what the Christians are doing. This was the, the testimony of the Christian church in terrifying situations. And so, so, so though, though those, uh, surrounding societal people did not understand the Christians. And even though they opposed them at times, these non-Christians could not help but respect the love displayed by those Christian women and men. These early Christians made it their business to care for those who had been abandoned to disease and to death. They rolled up their sleeves to do the work that nobody else was willing to do among the suffering, bringing dignity to those on death's doorstep. And in those moments, this is what it looked like to be ambitious for quiet lives, to pursue peace within their society. It was not a retreat. It was not a spiritual escapism. Now, our circumstances are very, very different. And yet the call for us to pursue peace remains. So I urge you today to make it your ambition to live quiet lives among your neighbors. Don't get caught up in scandals and drama that we have no business getting distracted by. Mind the business of the kingdom. Work with dignity and call out the dignity of everyone who works around you. And in doing so, we're not necessarily going to be understood by our neighbors. We're not going to necessarily be accepted, but I think we'll win the respect even as we meet the needs among us and our neighbors. And then like the Thessalonians, we too are going to be known for our love, for our love in action, for our love which points our neighbors to the love of God that stands ready to welcome everybody, everywhere. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that you would take this um, counterintuitive way of thinking about our lives in the world. We, many of us, have been somewhat insulated, 
somewhat isolated. We've some, some of us been formed to think of our lives six days a week as being rather distinct from our identity as Christian people. And yet here we see an example of your people living intentionally in the world in such a way that our love for one another increases and testifies to your love. So I pray that you give us that imagination today. I pray as we're thinking about our 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 workplaces tomorrow or the classes that we have to go to or the places we're going to be spending our time. Lord, would you give us a vision for living purposefully as people of peace in those places? Give us wisdom to know when we can step back, when we can let the controversy, the scandal, the drama play out, and when we must make that thing our business when we must advocate, when we must speak up, when we must stand up, regardless of the cost to ourselves. Would you show us what it looks like to treat our work with dignity? Would you show us what it looks like in our workplaces to treat everybody we work with with dignity, to advocate for those who are not treated with dignity in their workplaces? Would you make us a distinct and a strange and a noticeable people for how we work and how we work on behalf of others? Would you allow all of this to be a way of nurturing the love that we have for each other, a love that bears witness to your love for us? In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. Are we done? I think we're almost done, right? We're going to take the offering. We should take the offering. Let's take the offering. Um, If you uh, are new to the church and are not getting our email that goes out on a regular basis, please fill out the welcome card, drop it in there. If you don't have time, drop it off on the way out. And prayer cards as well. As always, uh, we'd love to pray for you after the service if you'd like to be prayed for, um, especially maybe uh, if you're in a place where you're kind of wanting to connect more and more how you live outside of church with the mission of God. We'd love to pray uh, for God's wisdom and, and courage on your behalf in that. Um, so let me, uh, let me pray for our offering. We'll receive that, and then I'll just a couple of things before our benediction. God, receive now tithes, offerings. Um, please, God, uh, put these to work um, for the, the, the way in which we can care for one another. We can pursue your mission uh, in this world. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. A couple of other announcements before um, the benediction. Uh, many of you know that we have a benevolence offering as a church or a benevolence fund. Uh, this is overseen by our leadership team to meet practical needs inside the church and outside the church. And I think for the first time in our church's history, we've almost totally depleted the benevolence fund, which is not a bad thing. It means that we've had a chance to be generous with folks who have, have needed that. But if you do give to the benevolence fund uh, or you want to, you can do that either by making a note when you give your tithes and offerings on a Sunday or you can do so uh, via the website as well and just just designate something to that benevolence fund. These tend to be things like uh, uh, crises that families are facing uh, or that a neighbor is facing, uh, and we want to be as generous as we can with those things. Amen? Uh, so thank you for your generosity there. Also, we're uh, two weeks away from um, our next potluck. And so, um, where, is Erica here? Is Erica here? There's Erica. So if you need a pep top, go find Erica after the service. <laughs> There you got your pep talk just now. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. So bring lots of food to share with, uh, with our guests um, on the first Sunday of the month. And then join us that Saturday, please, for prayer around the schools. Any other announcements? Any other announcements? Okay.
All right. Um, why don't you stand, please, for the benediction? And now may the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and for everyone else, just as ours does for you. May he strengthen your hearts so that you will be blameless and holy in the presence of our God and Father when our Lord Jesus comes with all his holy ones. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Go in peace.